welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor Yahweh with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise Yahweh's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For Yahweh reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Yahweh by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For Yahweh will be your confidence, and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go, and come again. Tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor, who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to Yahweh, but the upright are in his confidence. Yahweh's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This is the word of the Lord. Twice in this text we have the address to the son, my son. If you have a Lutheran study Bible, the table of contents for this book, as it structures it, gives you an outline, will put that forward as being a series of nine addresses to the son, with this being number three and then number four. And in these first six chapters is where we get those nine addresses. So we're 
we got to pick up speed a little over the next couple of chapters. Chapter 1 had 1, chapter 2 had 1, chapter 3 has 2 of them as we continue along. Do not forget my teaching. Okay, that's the overall point. The rest of it is, okay, what is the teaching? Do not forget these things. And primarily, we're aiming for wisdom. As a reminder, wisdom is, well, it's the Lord. It's Jesus Christ himself. And we're going to talk about that. We'll specifically narrow in on that. And blessed is the one who finds wisdom section starting in verse 13. But for now, verses 1 and 2 are are very much so understandable even for our children. Let your heart keep my commands. The length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. If you sleep with your neighbor's wife, breaking the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, your neighbor is likely to seek revenge. If you kill someone in your family or even another, your neighbors, your community around you, the courts and the law and so forth, are going to seek revenge and maybe put you to death. If you steal from your neighbor, you're, you're going to get punished. Keeping God's commands adds days and years and peace to you. Because you're not in such conflict. You're not bringing about these opportunities by your sin for your neighbor to shorten your life. A way to possibly talk about this with your kids is to review the Ten Commandments. Go through the list together. And now, now that you've done that, have them imagine two cities. One city, everybody does whatever they want, whenever they want. If they want to steal something, they just take it. If they hate you, they just kill you. It's all over the place. In the other city, everybody keeps the Lord's commandments. No one ever steals. No one ever hates. No one ever even thinks negative things against their neighbor. And which of those two cities, which of those two places would you like to live in? Now, in fairness, the one of those two places just described paradise, the blessed home that God is preparing for us forevermore, where there is no more sin that has been removed. But this is a concept our kids can understand. God's law is actually good. It's meant to be for our good and for the good of our neighbor. The better we keep it, the more peace we might find among our community. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Steadfast love here is the the great Hebrew word that we can't really translate in English, hesed. It refers to love, loyalty, mercy, steadfastness. All of these kinds of words get wrapped up into the one. It's usually something of the character of God himself. But here it would appear to be that we're described as having this this as well, that we would be faithful and loyal to what the Lord has given us to do, that we would bind these things on our neck. I believe that's the opposite of an Old Testament insult, which is to call someone stiff-necked. This is the picture of an ox that's plowing and, and, and working the field, that if its neck is thick, it means that it won't turn. It's one of those animals where wherever it's facing, that's the way it goes. And so as the farmer is working and tries to turn the beast, 
by turning his head with the reins or so forth, and the animal won't turn because it wants to do its own thing. That's stubbornness. And this is used many times of God's own test, his Old Testament people, the people of Israel, for being stiff-necked, that is, doing what they want, rather than turning, repenting of their evil ways and trusting in the Lord. So here, bind these normally characteristics of God, bind these things upon yourself. Write them on your heart. The tablet picture here uh, is the idea, like the Ten Commandments were chiseled in stone, uh, chisel these things into your heart so that they're permanent, they're engraved there. If so, you will find success, favor, in the sight of God and men. This was true in Israel. Contextually speaking, uh, that if you lived in the promised land and you kept God's word, things would go well for you. We don't necessarily have such a direct correlation and promise today. You can live by God's word and the world will still hate you because of Christ and your faith in Christ. And that's okay. In fact, it's called blessed in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, but we'll be coming back to those. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Our understanding's broken, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is perfect and he is with us. He is for us. This paragraph calls us to be humble, so to always acknowledge him, and also away from our pride, so not being wise in our own eyes, and that the Lord would then care for us. Verse 9, honor Yahweh with your wealth, and this paragraph gets it tithing. So Luke 16, the parable of the dishonest manager, where Jesus essentially with that parable is teaching his disciples to use the the stuff that God has entrusted to them in this world, which perishes. None of it goes with you. It will fail you at some point or another. Your house, your clothing, your shoes, your money, your food, all of it. Use that unrighteous stuff in order to love and care for others. And that's what verse 9 is getting at here with the wealth. And then it goes to first fruits, which is a picture of the tithe, that you would give to God your first fruit. That is trusting then that he will provide more, right? If you give him your first, he's going to give you a second, third, fourth, and so forth. This is what Abel did when he offered up his offering to God in Genesis 4. And God then tests them in this. This is Malachi 3. He says this very clearly, that they should put him to the test and see if he would not open up the heavens and, and pour out his blessing upon them so he will care for them that their barns and their vats of wine will be full, bursting. Again, we don't have such a direct correlation and promise since we are not ancient Israel in the promised land, but this is still important for us. The idea of the tithe is trust. Picture everything you have uh, as a a pie chart, if you want, or some some kind of a representation. God has given you 100% of all that you have. Take a slice away. Take away one-tenth. We give that to the Lord. Do you trust that with this remaining 90%, the Lord will still provide for you? I mean, he's the one that provided the 100% to you to begin with. Can he care for you with the 90? Do you trust that the Lord is the one who provides your daily bread? This is the picture of what the ancient tithe was for, for the individual was also for the sake of caring for those who were in need, the poor, the widows, the orphans, also used to care for uh, the Levites. 
that priestly tribe that didn't have their own own ability to work the land. We do have another my son phrase here in verse 11, um, but the Lutheran Study Bible, again, doesn't seem to pick up on that one as a separate address, instead leaving it lumped in together with number three. This paragraph is about discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, the unknown preacher in that book, will pick up on this idea, basically saying that if anyone is not disciplined, he's not a son. He's illegitimate. It's a great uh, area, a section to read. Like no one, no one likes discipline in the moment, but discipline yields fruit. God disciplines those he loves. Yahweh does this. He corrects us. He shapes us. He forms us so that we become like him instead of continuing to chase after our own sinful nature. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. I encourage you to read this paragraph, verses 13 through 18, first with your mind on what wisdom is. So think of it like, again, discerning, being able to judge right and wrong, good and evil, uh, so having a, a wise mind to be able to understand how the world works, and you can see how this would fit, right? You'd be blessed that you would, this is better than having silver, because you'll be able to figure out how to live day to day. You'll be able to love and serve your neighbor. All these things will be yours. Like the first couple of verses, uh, you'll even have peace and, and length of days because well, you won't do foolish things that bring about your own destruction, it brings peace. But the idea that it is called here the tree of life encourages us now to, to shift our focus and to consider this, as I mentioned before, that wisdom is Jesus. We sometimes talk about the tree of life as the cross, that the cross on which Jesus died becomes our tree of life as he sheds his blood which takes away our sins. The tree of life as a phrase, right, those three words together, three times in Genesis, four times in Proverbs, and four times in Revelation. That's it. That is the limitation and scope of its usage as a phrase. This is our first time seeing it in Proverbs. So the tree of life in the Garden of Eden placed there by the Lord in order to provide for his people, for Adam and Eve. However, after they have sinned, they are cast out from the garden, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. However, in Revelation, we are being brought back to the tree of life. We're being restored to partake of it once again, and the tree of life is described in quite magnificent terms right at the end in, in the section of Revelation 21-22, the idea that this is going to bear 12 fruits, one in each month, so the picture there being that it's basically always bearing fruit. Fruit, it will always produce. The Lord will always provide. So a neat picture. The tree of life, again, though we would connect to Jesus Christ as the one who gives us life that never ends. And this, again, this is our picture. Now look at this text in the light of Jesus Christ who gives us true understanding as we learn what our purpose is in this world. We learn what God has done for us. And that to have 
Christ is better than to have silver. It's better than to have gold. He is more precious than jewels. Nothing our hearts desire can compare with Christ. All of those things so tremendously fitting, correct? And then verse 16, long life is in his hand. And also riches and honor, which he bestows as he places the crown of life upon our head and we get to live in paradise with him forevermore. His ways are pleasant. His paths are peace. He is the king of peace as he reconciles us with God the Father. He is the tree of life for those who hold fast and they are called blessed. Now we think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of God. They shall inherit the earth. All those kinds of statements in in Matthew chapter 3. Verse 19 continues it. Yahweh by wisdom founded the earth. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Nothing was made that was not made through him, through the word. It's Jesus Christ himself. And then God establishes earth and heaven. He opens the deep so that water waters the earth and the plants but he also brings dew from above. Notice not rain. I don't have time to go into the bubble theory, but it's a pretty neat idea from how the atmosphere of the earth may have been different pre the flood of Noah, and that there may have been a layer of water. If you read the Genesis account of creation in chapter 1, there may have been a layer of water enveloping the earth up until the time of the flood when the floodgates of the heavens are opened. Verse 21 shifts the text into that fourth address, according to our our study Bible's outline, where now the Father, again, this is still Solomon speaking, but he's addressing the Son to keep wisdom, keep discretion, and again, they will be a benefit to his soul, to his neck, um, a dormant for your neck. He won't lose his neck, he won't lose his head because he's not getting into trouble, maybe, Um, but again, the picture of beauty, the picture of royalty, the picture of, of being the Lord's family, people. And he will be able to walk securely and not stumble. He can lay down without being afraid. Right? He doesn't have to sleep with one eye open, as the phrase goes, wondering who of his enemies might be trying to kill him. His sleep will be sweet. Now, family question, how often do your worries about what happens tomorrow keep you up today? How much does it rob our rest? And that's such a common thing for us, as we have trouble not worrying, trusting in the Lord. Do not be afraid of sudden terror when it comes, for Yahweh will be your confidence. Another family question, what happens to us when we die? So if a nuke is dropped on your city tonight, it does not matter to you. You're in, you're in paradise with Christ. Now, if you're one of the survivors, you have more work to do to care for your brothers and sisters around you in your community. But sudden terror is not a problem for us. If we die, we live. Thanks be to God. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. So is that talking about maybe your neighbor who needs it or those who are in need in general? Uh, Verse 28, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it. Don't do that. So we see that, that picture perhaps of need in particular, that if you have it, give it. But may it be put to use. Do not plot evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Another family conversation point. How can we love our neighbor today? 
Or how have we planned evil against them, and how can we say sorry, repent, and ask for forgiveness? Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. So we are called to be people of peace. Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. Notice that. Don't compartmentalize the different things of life. If he is a wicked and evil man, don't seek to follow some of the stuff he does. Have nothing to do with him. Don't envy him. Because he is an abomination to Yahweh. And that's not good, certainly. The upright, however, are in his confidence. Now, you could translate that word confidence into English as counsel or intimate company. So confidence, not not the way we normally hear the word, but kind of that, will you keep this confident? Will you, will you hold it tight? Will you not let it go? Will you not tell others? Um, so inner circle kind of idea here that the upright, those who are faithful, those who trust in the Lord, they are his and he brings them to himself. Then we see verse 34 gives us the picture of judgment, basically. To the scorner, he scorns. To the humble, he favors. So those who reject him, he rejects them. But those who are humble, that is, made low, that do not view themselves pridefully, he lifts up, he gives favor. We know ultimately best that that comes in paradise forevermore with Christ. Verse 35 again contrasts the wise and the fool. It's really the contrast of this entire book. The word wise shows up 60 times, and the word fool or foolish 71 times. Common theme. The wise are the faithful, the fools are the unbelieving, typically speaking, as you move through the book. 